Well, that is a kind introduction, and I'm even more excited about preaching, Jonah, with your expectations so high. (laughs) That's great. Um, So, yeah, um, I'm thankful and grateful to be here. Um, Like like has already been said, got um, three or four years under my belt of knowing Joe. Uh, I spent the night in a hotel room with Joe, you know, so has anybody ever done that? Yeah, right. Okay, so so did he tell you to get like earplugs and sleeping pills like before? No, no, no. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, that was no, my. I'm stuck there with two pillows. Yeah, right. That was my that was my experience as well. Uh, it, Joe tells me he's planning on listening to the sermons, so I'm not talking about him behind his back. He he's going to listen to this, um, and and he just needs to learn. You know, warn people a couple days in advance. He um, it's like a lumberjack symphony inside his <laughs> nose. It's it's epic. It's epic. So, but no, sincerely, though, grateful for Joe. He's been a good friend. He's been an encouragement to me, and it's really nice to be with you guys. I've been hearing from afar about uh, the ministry and, and uh, the fellowship here, and so it's exciting to be with you. I'm grateful for it. Um, I'm going to apologize in advance. I'm over my cold, right? Like, it's done. I'm not contagious anymore, but uh, it's, it shows up in my voice. And so if I clear my throat a few times, you'll just have to pardon me. Okay, so we'll like, um, like uh, Brandon said, I want to spend the next few weeks with you pouring over the amazing book of Jonah. I want to do it mostly because I personally love this book, and I'm hoping that uh, I can help you love it a little bit more, and that most of all, it increases our love for God together. Uh, and I want to share with you, just as we get started, a few quick, quick reasons as to why Jonah, like why we want to talk about Jonah, why I want to talk about Jonah. Uh, of course, the first reason is that it's God's Word. Uh, it's the Bible. And as, always <clears throat> as we've already been admonished this morning, uh, w- we are going to be hearing from a book that God wrote. I mean, this is going to be God's Word that's being shared with us this morning. Not, not, not an invention of men. And that means God will speak. This morning, together, we will hear God speak, because this is God's Word, and so that's exciting. That should make us eager. Another reason I'm excited about Jonah is that Jonah, it's one of those stories that we sometimes think we know, but we really don't uh, know very well. Um, it's, It's such a famous tale that we know a lot about it. But we're not as familiar with it as we'd sometimes like to think we are. It's kind of like one of those famous movies that so saturates the culture that um, you know, you come to know a lot about it just by virtue of being in the same country that the movie's released. But maybe you saw it so long ago, or you saw bits and pieces on television, and you've never sat through it, and so you know a lot about it, but you really don't know much of it. Uh, For me, this is Titanic. Does anyone remember when Titanic came out? Right, right. <clears throat> so I was 15 or 16 when Titanic came out. And so I remember how many Oscars it got. I remember uh, the, the cast. I remember My Heart Will Go On. You know, I remember you know, the, the edge of the boat. I'm the king of the world. I remember, I remember Leonardo DiCaprio could have totally fit on that door. He, Leo didn't need to die, right? <laughs> so I remember all of that. But, but I've never seen the movie. I have never seen Titanic. Never sat through it. So I could, but I can tell you a lot about it. Now, I think Jonah is a, a little bit the same way. We know some of the highlights, but we're not super familiar with it. And a lot of s- sermons and a lot of Sunday school lessons um, in Jonah really are, are kind of like highlights. They don't tell the whole story. And that's not a big deal if you're talking about Titanic, right? Like, I'm going to die happy never seeing Titanic. But, but with Jonah, that's a bigger deal. We're really missing something if we don't get the whole uh, story of Jonah. And so that's what we're going to try to do together in the coming weeks. It's a really good story we don't want to miss. And that's the last reason I wanted to share with you really quickly about why Jonah. It's just a good story. There are great falls and great comebacks. There's a sea monster. There's a storm and a raging tempest on the waters. There's uh, miracles. There's the mass conversion of an entire civilization. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing story. 
And then, oh, I guess I've got one more reason I'm excited about Jonah, and that's Jesus. There's far more of Jesus in this story than we expect to find. We won't see Jesus' name in it. There's no um, explicit, you know, plain prophecies about Jesus coming. It's not super obvious at first how Jesus appears in Jonah, but what I hope to show us as we go through is that it would be a crime not to be reminded of Jesus as we think about it. God tells this story in a way that particularly points forward to Jesus. So let's get to it. I want to read Jonah chapter 1. I don't have these words on the screen for us, so you'll be blessed if you listen real carefully or follow along even better in your Bibles. So Jonah chapter 1. Um, you know, it's kind of in the latter part, later part of the Old Testament. It's Obadiah, Obadiah Jonah, Micah, starting in verse 1. We'll read this, then we'll pray together. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But... Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Well, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to try to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah <clears throat> and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father God, <clears throat> as we have reminded ourselves already, uh, we are in your word now, and that means you are about to speak. And we just pray that you give us ears to hear. Uh, we fall far short. Uh, we are uh, unable to grasp these things and to hear your voice and to have hearts to do what it says, if not for your grace and your help and your spirit, a new heart in us. So give us that new heart, open up our ears, open our eyes. I pray that you'd be with me as I speak and that I would uh, just uh, abandon all self-consciousness and, and um, uh, thoughts of myself and my reputation and just be faithful to your word and that as we share it together, we would obey it from the heart because we're your kids, 
and you love us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John Calvin once wrote something interesting in his probably the most important book he ever wrote. And, and this, is what he, this is what he said. This is how he opened his magnum opus, the, his institutes. He said this, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And you can see, I'm sure, what he, what he means. He's saying that if you really want to know what's worth knowing, you have to know God, and you have to know yourself. And, and these two have to be a pair. Our world tries to um, separate them and say, no, you can just know yourself really well, and God can be, God can be compartmentalized or ignored. Or, or we say, no, you can just know God, know all, the, know all the theology. It doesn't have to touch your life and change your life. You can just be an expert on on, on the big ideas and, and have it never change your life. The, the world is always trying to, to separate these, these two areas of knowledge, but Calvin recognized what the Bible teaches is that these have to be a pair. You can't know yourself truly. You can't know what you need. You can't know what, what you are, who you are, what you're here for without knowing the God who made you. And if you're going to really know God, then you're not going to be able to help knowing how he made you and what you're here for. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves have to be a pair. And in a way, this is what Jonah is all about, how the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God come in a pair. Jonah is a story that deals with both of these things, both the knowledge of ourselves and the, and the knowledge of God. We learn a lot about ourselves in Jonah. Jonah functions a bit like a mirror for us. But we also learn all of these things about ourselves in Jonah in union with what we learn about God, with what Jonah shows us about God. In Jonah, we see ourselves in all our mucky sinfulness, and we see much of the God who can't be tamed or thwarted by our mucky sinfulness. And so it's these two subjects that make up the subject or make up the two main points of our time this morning. So I've got just two main points, uh, one point about ourselves, one point about God. And we'll talk about ourselves first. So point one is this. Point one is about uh, ourselves, what we learn about ourselves. And this is what Jonah teaches us. This is what Jonah shows us. Shows us that though we are special, we are sinful down to the core. Though we are special, we are sinful down to the core where we cannot touch, cannot change cannot alter. You think about me with Jonah and how Jonah is here to show us what we're like, both as people who are special and as people who are shockingly sinful. Think with me first about how Jonah is special. We're told here in these opening verses that Jonah is a prophet. That means the word of the Lord, the voice of God, is coming to Jonah in order that Jonah stand before nations and kings and tell them what's up. And tell them what God, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land, has to say to them. It's a big deal. The prophets were called servants of God. Moses was a servant of God. Even even the prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah call him the servant of God. And Jonah is a servant of God. This is a noble title. The prophets of the Old Testament, like Jonah, are set apart by God himself to hear God's voice and stand before the most powerful people in the world and tell them what God has said. Sinclair Ferguson has a a helpful book on Jonah called Man Overboard, and he, he summarizes it this way. Jonah belonged to that privileged band of men who had stood in the presence of God and felt the pressure of his will upon their spirits. They heard his unmistakable voice telling them what he was about to perform among the nations. He was given sight into the purposes of the eternal God and was divinely commissioned to bring God's people under the practical authority of his word. Forget what you know about Jonah in the coming verses. What we see in this one, what we're meant to know as we read these first words in Jonah is that this is a great man. 
Don't miss that. This is a special man. This is a man with a, with a purpose and a calling, a reason to live. He knows what he's for. And you and I often get confused about this. <clears throat> I mean, get confused about what we are here for. And the world and the devil offer plenty of alternative purposes for living. Some are tricked into thinking that all of our value and purpose is tied into our skin color. Right? So all of my, all of my peace and security and, and, and feelings of significance is tied to uh, the, the color of my skin and how many friends I have that are the same color, which is why racism is a huge problem still in our world. It's a, it's a, it's a false source of salvation to think of your skin color as superior. <clears throat> Others think meaning and joy is found in being in the right political party, which is why so many people are unhappy and unsettled when their party isn't in power. Others have tried to find their purpose in, in physical achievements or in career achievements uh, so that their happiness depends upon how many visible abs they have, right, or, or how much they've accomplished in their careers. Um, some people try to find joy and purpose in their intelligence, which is why they're always threatened by people who are smarter than they are. And there's always somebody who knows at least one more thing than you do, right? And so their security is as secure as the next smartest person they meet. And maybe they just try to find all of their joy and security and purpose in life and raising kids who achieve a lot. Uh, I, I grew up in a church where um, uh, parents felt successful if their kids graduated without uh, tattoos or piercings. Right? How silly is that? That the outward appearance of your child is somehow going to impress God? As if being a really good parent <clears throat> could get you into heaven? The reality is that as Christians, if we forget what we're here for, we will tell one of these other things, we will let one of these other things tell us how to live. Tell us why we're here. And all our joy and all our peace will only be as secure as our job or our health or the behavior of our kids or some other thing we can't control that's seasonal, fading. If as Christians we forget that we're here for God, then our peace and our security will be as safe as a canoe and a typhoon. And Jonah serves us as a reminder of what you and I as Christians are here for. Okay, so, so we are a lot like Jonah. Now, I know there are differences, huge differences, right? Not only are there the differences of, of time and, and culture and, and nationality, but Jonah was a prophet. He heard the voice of God revealing his plans for the nation. And, and none of us quite feel like we have that privileged status before God. But I wonder if we maybe shouldn't feel a little privileged the way Jonah was. I mean, Jonah hadn't met Jesus yet. Yes, J Jonah heard the voice of God announcing God's plans uh, for, for the nations here and there, but you and I are Christians, and we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have all of God's plans explained for us in the Jesus who has come, and he's lived for us, and he's died for us, and he's risen from the dead for our eternal hope and security. Jonah didn't know the fullness of that message yet. We have a greater message from God than Jonah had. We have the gospel. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson's comments again. He says, Few things are more important for the Christian than to have a conscious sense of destiny. Now that destiny may not be one of spiritual fame like, like that of Jonah's, because that's of a secondary importance. What is important is that we have some sense of what we are for. It's important that we as Christians understand God has spoken, and he's opened up our hearts and our ears to hear him, and now we've got this message. I mean, it was exactly what you were talking about this morning from Ezekiel, right? You eat the word of God, and you can't help but share it. This is what we are here for, to share the good news of our good God. And sometimes that good news is a hard word, right? Like, um, and this is another way we're a little bit like Jonah. Jonah, when he was given the word of the Lord, it was kind of a hard word. 
Now, you, you'll notice back in, in verse 2, he's told to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's a hard word. You have to go to this mass population and tell them they're evil. Solo. We don't get it. Jonah's not sent with anyone. Go all by yourself. Go to Omaha and tell them they're evil all by yourself. Hard words. Hard words. You know, part of the good news that Jesus saves sinners is hard because that means you're a sinner. You're evil. I'm evil. And I need a Savior. But that's our word. That's our good word. The part, a part of the word that we've been put here to announce to the world, that's what we are here for as Christians. And that's one way we're very much like Jonah. But then there's that other way we're like Jonah. And that's in verse 3. After being called to go, take the word of the Lord to Nineveh, it says, but Jonah rose instead to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish is exactly in the opposite direction of Nineveh. The exact opposite direction. God said, go this way, and Jonah went that way. He pulled a total 180. Jonah isn't simply missing the mark here. He's not simply falling short. He's not simply making a mistake. It's not like he's getting sent to the store for Dr. Pepper and coming back with Mr. Pibb, right? Like, that's a mistake. But Jonah's not making a mistake. He's not simply trying and failing. He's doing the opposite of what God told him to do, and he's doing it on purpose. And we wish we couldn't relate, but we can, right? And as people, we need to face this. We need to face this. You might consider Romans 1, uh, 18 through 25 with me. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it. Your pastor is a good pastor, so I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but I'll show it to you again to consider this point. Romans 1, 18, the Apostle Paul tells us, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, he's talking about us by the way, suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, this is Jonah. You know who God is and you know what he's worth and what he deserves and you're going to do the exact opposite on purpose. Our sins are, are not simply things that we do. Mistakes that we make. Sin is knowing deep down to the core what God is like and what he deserves and then willingly and purposefully doing the exact opposite. It's not something we do. It's what we are like. It's who we are. And nothing we seem to do, if you notice this, really helps your condition. Like, no matter how you try to manage it. This is Martin Luther's dilemma. Martin Luther, you've probably heard of. He's a pastor in Germany in the 1500s who's uh, largely credited with starting the Protestant Reformation. And Luther's life is interesting as you read him because um, he really talks about how he lived his entire life trying to settle his conscience. He lived his entire life painfully trying to silence his conscience and, and ease his guilt over this reality that I've just been talking about. He thought to himself, okay, if I'm going to be righteous, if I'm going to be right in God's sight, if I'm going to make it, 
I've got to do righteous deeds. If I'm going to be good, I've got to do good works. If I'm going to be righteous, I have to do righteous things. The more he did righteous things, the more depressed he became. And the more he hated God. Because he knew he could never do enough to please him. Never do enough to impress him. Never do enough to, to wipe his slate clean. Uh, one author talks about Luther's dilemma this way. He says, Luther began to see that sin was not so easy a problem to whisk away. It went deep down. And I, and I love, this, love this phrase. It went deeper than he could reach by himself. Deeper than he could reach. And this was Luther's problem. This was the reason for Luther's angst. This is the reason his guilt could never be taken away. He thought that, just like a lot of people think, he thought that sin was something that needed to be corrected or managed outwardly. Certainly this isn't my natural condition. This is something I caught, like a, like a cold. Right? And all you need for a cold is, is a hot bath, right? Some NyQuil. Not a whole new nature. Surely not a whole new nature. I've got this friend in Minneapolis. His name is John. And uh, John is kind of one of those Christians that I've always wanted to be like. Um, he's just somebody you look up to and, and admire. And so one day I asked him, John, how did God get you? <clears throat> how, did, uh, how, did, how did you get saved? And, and he told me a story about his son, Polly. And Polly is 16, 17 years old now. But when Polly was born, he had no eyes. He wasn't, he, he wasn't simply blind. He, he had no eyes. He, he was born with autism, uh, various mental handicaps, severe seizures. And, and John, John tells me how even though he was a Christian at this point, or, or at least uh, a guy who went to church a lot, and, and though he knew all the Sunday school answers, so to speak, he knew a lot about the Bible, he knew how to sound Christian, John tells me that he was slowly coming to believe that his son was evidence that God was mean. He can remember looking at a friend of his in the eye saying, you know what, our God is mean, and there's the proof sitting in that high chair. Paulie spent a lot of his beginning years in surgery. Lots of surgeries. And after countless surgeries, John, his, his dad, had memorized every hallway and door in the hospital. <clears throat> One day they're going in for yet another surgery, and John is frayed. He's tired of surgeries. And it had been a rough morning for Polly. Polly didn't understand what was going on, and so he'd been upset all morning and difficult to control. And, and finally, after a chaotic morning in the hospital, Polly is on the <clears throat> is on the bed being wheeled to surgery, and, and there's this young know-it-all surgeon who's taken him down the hallway, and he turns the wrong way. And John says, oh, we've been here all morning, and it's been a bad morning, and you just went the wrong way, buddy. You need to go that way. That's the way the surgery is. And the surgeon is just like, I'm the surgeon. I know where I'm going. This is my hospital. And John's like, Apparently, I've been here longer than you have because you just went the wrong way. And John, John tells me he's, he's, he's having this argument with the surgeons and, and, and the nurses and the doctors. about like, You're going the wrong way. And he, he tells me, he's just like, that is it. And in his, in his, in his head, he's thinking to himself, that is, this, this is it. This young punk surgeon thinks he knows it all. I, I hate this man. He said, I thought this in my head. He said, I said this in my head. I hate this man and I'm going to kill him. And, and John said, he told me, I meant it. This man was as good as dead. And then he tells me, he has this other thought pop into his head. It's a thought that sends him to the floor in a ball. And he says, I, I didn't hear an audible voice. It's just a thought that came to my head, but, I, but I, I'm certain it was God. And these were the words. Now, John, do you see how wicked you are? You're a murderer. And it sent him to the floor in a heap. It broke him. It destroyed him because all of a sudden he realized 
He'd been living his entire life thinking that he had some right to stand before God and not be sentenced to hell for his sin. That somehow, yes, oh yes, of course, God, I, I sin. But I'm not sinful. I'm not so sinful to the core that I can't even touch it, that I have no power to change it. And that moment just took that deception away from him. And ever since, he has been a glad and happy recipient of grace, a Christian that other Christians want to be like because he realized all in a moment that he had no standing before God. That's the point of looking at Jonah. Jonah was a great man. He knew how to sound like a believer. He was a prophet who heard the voice of God. And what that means for us, as we see how far Jonah falls, what that means for us is that we are to take away the truth that there is no man who is so great that he doesn't need the heart-changing grace of God to get him. Not a one of us is so great or impressive in God's sight that we don't need the heart-changing, life-changing grace of God to nail us. This is what we learn of ourselves in Jonah. We are chosen, we are special, we are loved, but we are sinful deep down, so deep down that we can't touch it. We need God to touch it. We need God to change it. We need God to send the storms after us and come after us and rescue us from our high and lofty opinions of ourselves. And that's what the next part of the story shows us. What hope do sinners like us have to be saved? That is the second main point this morning. The second main point is about God, and it's this. Though we are sinners, God will not fail to receive the honor and praise he deserves, even from sinners like us. Okay? We are sinners, we are messy, but God will not fail to receive the honor and praise he deserves from sinners like us. Notice how this first chapter is told to us in a way that shows us a God who cannot be escaped, a God who cannot be avoided or sidelined or dismissed. This is a major point the book is trying to make. <clears throat> okay, so notice verse 3. There's something that's repeated, and, and, and Hebrew authors do this to emphasize what it wants us to catch. Verse 3, it says, um, oh, I'm still in Romans. Here, okay. Verse 3, it says, <clears throat> Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Okay? He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went on board to go with them away from the presence of the Lord. Why does he repeat it? We already read it like a sentence before. Right? He repeats it because it's just like, okay, giant flashing neon sign here. Jonah's trying to run from the presence of the Lord. Then... In every other verse, almost every other verse, there is a reference, there, there, there is a statement, there is, there is something in each of those verses that alerts us to the reality that God is not going to be fled from. You can't escape him. You can't get away from him. He's always there. If you've got your Bibles open, notice this particularly in the coming verses. Verse 4. Okay, Jonah has fled, and then it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Okay, so Jonah is running, but the Lord shows up and hurls a great wind upon the sea. God is not being escaped. Uh, verse 6, <clears throat> this is interesting to me. Verse 6, um, you've got the captain coming down into the ship, and he's like, what are you doing? What do you mean by, by your sleeping? Arise, he says. Call out. To your God. It's, it's interesting that the captain says, arise, call out, because what did God tell Jonah to do up in verse 1? Arise, call out. Okay? Arise, get up off your duff and go to Nineveh and call out. And it's the exact same thing here the captain is saying almost. It, it's almost as if God is using the captain to, to say something in a way that would remind Jonah of where he's supposed to be and what God has told him to do. Again, even through the mouth of this captain, God is not being ignored and dismissed easily. Verse 7, God determines that the roll of the dice would reveal Jonah as the one that the storm has been sent for. Verse 11, 
as the sailors are waiting to decide what they do. You can, you can see the sailors kind of delaying. I mean, the, these sailors are not believers in Jonah's God, but they're humans, and they're trying not to just toss out their fellow human, and they're trying to stall, and they're trying to wait, and they're trying to come up with alternative plans so that everybody could kind of get away from this alive. And, and as they wait, and as they delay, and as they try to stall God, raises the storm up to 11, right? He, he increases the wind and the waves. The sea, it says in verse 11, grows more and more tempestuous. God is controlling the wind and the waves to speed along their decision. Verse 13, the men trying to save Jonah, trying to row back to land, but it says they could not. They're not in charge. God is in charge. Verse 14, the sailors pray to the Lord by name this time. You'll notice there's a, there's a transition at this point after they find out what's going on. No longer is it, oh, call upon this God or call upon that God. It's, okay, we know who's in control here. Let's talk to him by name, the Lord. Incidentally, when you see Lord in your Bibles, all capitalized like that, capital L, capital O, capital R, uh, that's just the modern translation way of, of actually referencing the name of the Lord. So if you were to go to the Hebrew, it would be Yahweh, the same name that the Lord announced to Moses at the burning bush. And that's the name these sailors are suddenly calling out. They pray to the Lord by name, confessing that, okay, you're the God who gets his way. You will do as you please. And then in verse 15, when they finally toss Jonah overboard and hurl him into the sea, it is God who says, okay, enough with the storm. It's just again and again and again in this chapter, God can't be dismissed or ignored or escaped. He has tried to flee, but he has laughably failed. And here's the important thing about meeting this God who will not be escaped. Here's the important thing about pointing out that this is a God that can't be escaped. Because we're going to see in the coming chapters that this God who can't be escaped is a good God of grace. This storm actually turns out to be a way that God is loving on Jonah. And even loving these unbelieving sailors, right? Like through this whole ordeal, a boatload of idolaters, statue worshipers, come to meet the God who made the sea and the dry land, and they worship him. You see that in verse 16 again, right? Fear, the fear of God, the awe of God and who he is falls upon him, and they are in reverent worship. Through this ordeal, God casts Jonah into a situation where he comes face to face with not only a God he cannot escape, but the God he desperately needs. I were Jonah, and I had done what Jonah had done, I would think that God would be done with me, but God is not done with him. This is the God that Jonah needs. Now, this circles back to the question of what sinners like us are to do when we are confronted with the depth of our need. When we're confronted with the seriousness of our sin, what's the solution to our problem? I think this is it. The solution to our problem is a God who shows up. It's not, a, it's not the next newest self-help book. Incidentally, you can tell how, well, like how good we are at self-help by how many books there are about it. Like they wouldn't keep writing books about it if we were good at it, right? We are not good at self-help. What we need is a God who shows up. Our salvation is a God who appears, a God who makes himself known and makes himself known in a way that absolutely demands our awe and demands our worship. So to be awakened from our spiritual stupidity is to be impressed with God where he shows up. Now that's kind of a, you know, off in the clouds kind of idea. Oh, be impressed with God where he shows up. Well, where does he show up? Does he show up in my cereal? Does he show up in like that burning feeling in my chest? Like where does God show up that I might be impressed with him? Let's get specific. Where has God shown up? Where has God shown up in history in a way that is more impressive than anything else? I would suggest to you that the place where God has appeared to show himself in the best possible way, in the most impressive way, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Above all things, the cross is something that we are to behold 
and be impressed with. If you want to, flip over to John 3, a very famous passage. Very famous story, too. You got the expert churchman, Nicodemus, visiting Jesus in the middle of the night. And this is that famous passage where, where Jesus, um, or the, you know, John 3.16 is in John 3, for God so loved the world. It's a, it's a famous, famous account. And this man, Nicodemus, who's visiting with Jesus, he's a lot like Jonah. He's the religious expert. He should have been close to God, but he wasn't. And Jesus just cuts right to the chase with Nicodemus. And he says, listen here, buddy. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to get it, if you're going to see heaven, if you're going to see God in heaven, you have to be born again. You need a whole new heart, man. You need a whole new life, a whole new nature. Nicodemus doesn't get it. And there's this, there's this weird little passage, in, 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 in starting in verse 13, where Jesus explains it to him. And, and I think it connects to Jonah beautifully. It connects us to that, this idea that, that our hope and our salvation is in being impressed with God where he shows up. So this is what Jesus explains to Nicodemus in uh, verse 13. I'm going to read it and then give you some of the background. These are the words of Jesus. He says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, maybe you know the, the story that Jesus is talking about there. That's a, that's a reference to a, to a story from the Old Testament where the, the children of Israel recently freed from slavery, okay, slavery, are complaining about not being slaves anymore. Like, God has rescued them, and they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they're no longer slaves. They're free, but they're a little upset about the menu. And so they start to complain and grumble, and as, as God's discipline, a, a curse of serpents is sent into the camp to, to bite and poison the people. <clears throat> and the salvation that God sends them is he tells Moses, okay, bronze a serpent, put it on a stick, put it on a pole, and hold that up. <clears throat> and whoever looks at that serpent gets saved. Whoever looks at that serpent gets healed. That's the story that Jesus is referring to here. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus says, what I'm going to go through is kind of like that. He says, Nicodemus, the day is going to come here pretty soon where I'm going to get lifted up and I'm going to get put on a stick. And you need to look. You need to look at the Son of Man, the Son of God, up on that tree, up on that cross, and you need to behold it and wonder and worship the God of heaven who would take your place for your sins. You need to see that, and you need to be impressed with that. You need to know that that is what you need. You don't need your garbage managed. You need God to take your place. You need His righteousness. You need His sacrifice. You need to see me lifted up, Nicodemus, and you need to be impressed. Jesus wants us to look at the cross, see Him lifted up in our place, and worship, and be in awe. I mean, think about it. Can you think of a real reason for God to love you? Considering what Jonah reveals about your own heart, considering what we all know about our own hearts, can you think of a reason for God to love you? Oh, but we look at the cross, don't we? We look at the cross and we tell ourselves, He does love me. And that's impressive that God would take my place. Does that not amaze you? In the words of one great preacher, a man like Jonah shows us we are more worthy of judgment than we could have ever imagined. More worthy of judgment than we could have ever 
imagined. But Jesus on the cross shows us we are more loved than we could have ever dreamed. So my prayer for us this week is that we will have together a sober awareness of how deep our sin goes and yet stand in glad awe of the God who has pursued you and loved you through Jesus Christ. Now, um, I want to leave you with two things as we wind down two quick takeaways for tomorrow. All of this is really big. And sometimes when we spend our time up in the clouds, we need a, we need a quick little nugget of, okay, now what do I do? Mostly what you need to do is be impressed with God. But let me give you two applications, two takeaways for tomorrow. The first is this, and this is to help us with our temptations. If you don't already think this way, start to think of your temptations as these things that are trying to get you to do the impossible. Every temptation is trying to get you to do the impossible, right? Temptation is trying to get you to flee from the presence of the Lord. The temptations that really get us tend to be the ones that go after the part of ourselves that's running from God. Okay, so when you blow it this week, and you will, ask yourself, what is it about God here that I'm trying to get away from? And tell yourself, that's, that's silly. God can't be escaped. There's something in there that's trying to get me to do something impossible. That's silly. Ask God to catch you like he caught Jonah. Bust you like he busted Jonah. Tell yourself, there's no getting away from God. Why don't we just put this away? Here's what it can more specifically look like. The reality is that your sin only gets worse if it stays secret. If you keep it in the dark, it only gets worse. So if you're not already doing it, find someone in this room or another believer and decide to know each other, heart and soul. Bring your stuff into the light with them because it's in the light that our sin withers and dies. Second application, second takeaway. <clears throat> this one's to help us be amazed by God. <clears throat> Treat your time in the Bible like a Jesus hunt. Right? Like, look for Jesus in every part of the Bible. Jonah might seem like a strange place to talk about Jesus, but we're going to find some interesting parallels, some interesting similarities. You think about this story alone here in chapter 1, the story of a prophet asleep on a boat in a storm. Where else have you heard that story? Right? Jonah is famous. It's a famous part of Jonah's story. But there's another part of the Bible where a very similar story is told, and that's in the New Testament. In that story, just like Jonah, Jesus is asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm, and the sailors are terrified. And that's not the only similarity. Now, of course, there are differences. Jonah was on his boat because he was disobedient. Jesus was on his because he was obedient. And Jonah was cast into his sea. He was cast into the stormy waters, whereas Jesus, he just stood up and told his to knock it off. And so, this, yes, there are some differences between the two stories, but, but think about how both stories end. In both stories, everyone else on the boat stands in awe of the one who calms the storm. Both stories end in worship of the one who calms storms. And so we should see here in Jonah a story of a God who calms storms and immediately think of Jesus who calms the storm because he's God. He's God in the flesh. And every story that God is telling in his word is meant to point us toward him, direct our gaze toward him and open up our hearts more for him. All the stories God is telling are meant to lead to Jesus. And so it's not a wasted effort to look for Jesus in every part of your Bible. Think about all the ways in which the stories in the Bible might be pointing forward to him or resembling him in some way because that's the direction that God's story was always going to Jesus, that we'd have a bigger heart for him and a greater sight of him. We're going to have another experience of Jesus here in just a moment by sharing in communion together. So I'm going to pray for us now and ask that God would bless our time <clears throat> as we share in these remembrances of his body and blood broken and poured out for us. So let's, let's pray. Father God, 
We thank you for Jesus, and we ask that this moment would be a moment of worship, a moment of, uh, to use biblical terms, covenant renewal, a moment where we're coming back to you, where we're running back to you, saying yet again what our, what our baptism says, that we are yours. You are our God and Savior. Lord, we love you and we believe you. Help our unbelief and help our lack of love. Increase our love and increase our faith through these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, The the broken body of Jesus Christ is is represented in the bread here, and and in the cup, of course, is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus is the price that Jesus was willing to pay in order that his Father be worshipped by many forgiven nations. Uh, Communion is about forgiveness of sins, yes. It's about Jesus' sacrifice, yes. But first and foremost, communion is about God's worth. God is not a God that deserves to be fled from, to be run from. It's God that deserves to be worshipped. And He will not fail to be worshipped by many forgiven nations. And this is the way This points to the way that our forgiveness was purchased. Jesus said, this is is my body forgiven for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins, yes, but forgiveness of sins that we might be brought to God. So this is a meal for believers. This is an act for believers. If, if you're a believer and you love Jesus, then this is a good thing to do. If, if you're not a believer, you're not sure you're a believer, you're not sure where you stand with God, then, then it's a good thing to do to just wait. Not, not, to, not to share in this if you're uncertain about where you stand with God. But if you've given yourself to Christ and if the God of heaven, the God who's made the sea and the dry land and pursued mucky sinners like us has caught you if he's your king and your lord then we want you to share this with us that's gonna be me over here i think and uh brandon somewhere over here and you're invited to come forward and i'll uh share some with you pray for you if you need prayer and we will share this together i invite you to Come when you are when you are ready.